Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. I'm so delighted to have this wonderful guest with us today. Bob Bell is the author of Out of the Limelight and Into the Sunlight, Birding as Therapy for the Chronically Ill. He is a former mineral exploration geologist. I want to hear about that. That is a fascinating, fascinating line of work until Lyme disease gave his life a little bit of a turn. So we're going to talk about his book, his life, and most importantly, his birding. Welcome, Bob Bell. Thank you, Courtney. It's, it's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. And I, I'm really happy that you connected with me and give me this opportunity to, to share my story of hope. I can't wait. I can't wait to dig into your book. I have so enjoyed it. And I love learning from Canadian birders because I'm here in Southern California and you see all sorts of lovely things that we don't get to see. We unfortunately lose a lot of our my favorite birds for the winter. And if you were here this morning, you'd see why. <laughs> we had no snow up until yesterday morning. And then we got blasted with this big system that came out of Colorado. So I'm going to blame Americans for it. And it's traveled. I think it's going right over to New York and the East Coast. But it was snow and freezing rain. So my bird feeders are very, very busy this morning. Oh, I'm so sorry for the things we export to you that you do not want. I apologize. <laughs> we'll go there. <laughs> well, Bob, I would love for you to just start off by telling us your story. So you were a mineral exploration geologist. What is that? And what happened next? Okay, well, I, I joke in, as you probably read in my book, that um, my mother could put me in the sandbox and leave me alone for hours. And, and, uh, so I say maybe that was the foundation of my interest in in the natural in in geology. But but seriously, my my dad was a high school science teacher, and he really instilled in me a passion for all things nature, astronomy. I was in the butterflies and moths and a rock collection, and so it was natural I was going to end up in some sort of science profession, and I became a, a geologist. Um, focused my, my whole career was in mineral exploration so essentially looking for concentrations of minerals in enough quantity that you could exploit them and, and and make a mine and I know lots of people have issues with mining and 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 the after effects of that but that's very historical I mean modern day mining is much cleaner and better and you know and if you don't like it you're using a laptop and a camera and you're living in a house and where do you think those products came from but anyway that's another whole story but you know, I was very lucky to work all over the world um, in my career. And in a presentation I just gave yesterday, I compared um, my career as an exploration geologist and birding. And they're both, in a way, a treasure hunt. Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking for you're looking for gems. And I put up a photo. I said, you know, I spent much of my career looking for gold, exploring for gold. And I put up a picture of a a golden crown kinglet foraging for insects in goldenrod. And I said, there you go. There, there's a similarity. But on the other hand, I've had to learn 
as a birder, a whole new uh, lingo. I mean, every specialty has got their specialized acronyms and lingo. And as a geologist, we use the term BIF, and a BIF stands for banded iron formation. Well, mm. to birders, a BIF is birds in flight. So, so I, I'm learning, and I, I used to, you know, I had to learn terms like uh, to dip on something, which means uh, you, you missed it. Everybody else saw it, and you missed it. And a lifer, you know, and the first time you see a bird. And so, so I'm getting there, but I worked all over the world, and somewhere in my travels, I was obviously exposed to a tick that I'm not aware of. And, you know, statistically, they say less than 50% of people with Lyme are aware of having been exposed to a tick. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, the ticks are infectious even at the nymph stage, which is a pinhead. And, you know, if you've got a darker skin tone than mine or lots of freckles or moles like I do, or if it's on your back where you can't see it, I mean, there's no wonder that, that people aren't aware of having an embedded tick. And, and then the other thing is only half of those people that know that they had a tick get the supposed diagnostic bullseye rash. Hmm. So, you know, the medical system is, is very skeptical about it. And Lyme is called the great imitator because it mimics the symptoms of so many diseases. When, you know, I went on the Mayo Clinic website and I went through um, the symptoms of Parkinson's. And if I remember correctly, there was about 19 symptoms. I have them all or, or had them all at varying stages of my, my journey. So the great imitator makes it very, very tricky. And, and, you know, I was tested for MS and the neurologist literally did a hand washing motion. And I'm sorry, but you don't have a neurological disease, but no interest in finding out what was causing all the symptoms of MS and ALS and Parkinson's. So very, very frustrating. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I have a dear friend who has Lyme disease and um, there was a, the first church I pastored, there was a, a high schooler who was star athlete and ended up with Lyme disease and to see the turns their lives took and to see the frustration in trying to get a diagnosis, because like you said, it does mimic so many different things and the symptoms come and go, they wax and wane, some months are different than others and just the the process of feeling so rotten and having to work so hard for a diagnosis is a really hard combination. And, and you know, you're, you're doing that while you're struggling with, you know, brain fog. If brain fog is a real problem and so you're, you don't have clarity, lack of energy. Like I would hit the wall about noon every day and I was the CEO of a junior mining company and I just couldn't function. I had to go home for a nap and it was getting harder to hide that there was something going on. You know, and you get this anxiety and you get mood swings. And anybody that knows me well, I, you know, I'm, I like to think I'm pretty stable and I don't have mood swings, but I'd be raging over nothing. And, and so you have to self-advocate for yourself while you're dealing with all that. So you're the most vulnerable and least able to fight for yourself. And, you know, I, I, I was going to mention a bit earlier that um, in mass, for example, Canada has the highest rate of multiple sclerosis in the world. And the, the party line is because we're so far north, we don't get enough sunshine, and then there's a vitamin D link and then cascading effects in the MS. But I would argue that there's five or 600 million Europeans living further north than, than Canadians. We forget how far north Europe is because the Gulf Stream makes it warmer than it should be for its latitude. 
And so my thinking, and this is a geologist, obviously not a, a bird or not a, not a doctor, but I'm wondering if our high excess rate of MS is actually misdiagnosed Lyme disease. Interesting. That's just my, 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 my theory, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, the tricky thing in the diagnosis is that ticks are so small. I grew up in Northern Wisconsin and we would do those tick checks after we walked through the woods, but it's, you know, and we'd find them, but they were infinitesimal. And I'm like, how many are we not finding? You know, if, if, if we found a few and we'd find them on the dog and we'd find them on each other. And there were just seasons where you almost didn't want to walk through the woods because it is such a hazard and um, it's really, really tough. You know, I find, um, you know, a lot of my birding friends, of course, we're very vulnerable because we're out in the woods and, 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 you know, and I keep saying, don't let me fear monger and don't let your fear of Lyme ruin your enjoyment of nature because that's far more important mm -hmm. in the scheme of things. And, and, you know, I say, if you take sensible precautions, you, you know, um, do a thorough body check when you come back and have a shower um, I wear rubber boots, you know, especially if I have to go off trail, the tall grass is where they tend to be. And, and um, you know, just be smart about it, but, but don't uh, fear monger to the point that you're not relaxed and enjoying nature. Because when I'm out there with the birds, my mind is off my body, it's off the ticks. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, for me, birding is a form of mindfulness it's mental calming. It slows me down. It gets my mind off all my anxieties and worries. And I'm just focused in the moment on the birds. So, you know, it's obviously not a cure, but it is a great coping mechanism. And it's not just lying. I've talked to um, more and more people, um, people, cancer survivors are out there birding for the same reason. It, it really helps them. It's very therapeutic and and there's so many aspects of birding of why I'm passionate about it. And, and, and one of them is friends. You know, I, uh, I joke that um, in, in the BB era, and that doesn't stand for Bob Bell, that stands for before birding. My friends were probably like most people, your friends are childhood friends that you met at school or through your parents as a kid, or they're work colleagues. And yes, they're friends, but you get out and meet birding friends. And now they're from all walks of life. Instead of me being in a bubble and all my friends are geologists and lawyers, now they've come from all walks of life, which opens up your horizons to so many different aspects of life. And you all share this beautiful, common passion of birds. And to get, you know, to see a lifer with a, with a friend is a real bonding experience. You're high-fiving each other and it's a real buzz. So that, that's a big aspect in addition to the mental calming and soothing. And, and then there's things like, you know, the fresh air and the exercise and the vitamin D from the sun and, and all of that about being out in nature. But you don't, if you're, I'm really a big proponent of this bird ability, which seems to be really coming out of the States now. Uh, you, it's not all about being out on a trail and walking miles and, you know, because let's face it, some people are, are more challenged than I am and maybe they're in a wheelchair or they don't have, um, you know, if you're sitting at home, you got feeders, you can watch feeders. But if you don't even have that, if you live in an apartment, for example, and you can't get out, there's so many webcams and nest cams. And that's soothing. You can sit and watch boreal birds up in northwestern Ontario, Cornell Lab has a beautiful webcam and you can watch pine grosbeaks and evening grosbeaks and common red poles to your heart's delight all winter. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's amazing. It's, it's soothing and it's calming. Mm -hmm. 
It really is. It is one of the best resets I've found when I'm stressed or when life is difficult or it's just, it, it, it settles my insides down. And I would love to hear how you got into birding because you, you talk in the book about how birding kind of saved you. It, it pulled you out of a really, a really difficult place. What, tell the story of, of how the birding began. Okay. Well, you know, being a scientist and always being in love with nature, I always had bird feeders in, in my houses wherever I lived. And when I had to retire, I was actually living in a condo in downtown Toronto. And then I moved out where I am now in uh, at the west end of Lake Ontario in a small town called Ancaster, surrounded by forest. And the first thing I did was was put up bird feeders. Actually, no, the first thing I did was have my lawyer check the condo rules to make sure there was no rule against bird feeders. And, and put up the feeders and, you know, instantly I was mesmerized by all the birds that were coming to the feeders, including a, a Carolina wren, which I wasn't familiar with. So I started reading up and researching on, on, on birds. And I've always found the best way for me to learn is to write things out. So I started making notes and ended up writing a, a bird book for myself. Uh, not like what I just wrote, but, but just a summary of all the birds that I could expect to see in the area. And while I was doing it, I realized, hey, my my back and you know my backside's not as sore as it normally is because normally I can't sit still very long mm. because of my neuropathy everything goes numb and tingly and, and I have to move but I you know I was in the zone just even researching birds and then I I discovered that uh, this area there's a Hamilton Naturalist Club which has got hundreds and hundreds of members that are really a lot of them are real experts and not just birds but you know all kinds of aspects of nature. And, you know, a lot of people talk about a spark bird, you know, which really hooked them. And that, that was what really got them addicted. For me, it was a spark field trip. I discovered, mm. you know, it was, um, I retired in the fall of 2015. I was doing that research winter 2016. Um, I signed up for a field trip that the, the uh, club was putting on. It was just about half an hour out of town here, like a half day birding trip. And I thought, I've got the energy for that. So, so I went on that, and that's what hooked me. I met so many keen people, nice people. They gave me tips on binoculars and cameras. And I started you know, seeing all these different birds that I wasn't used to. And, and I got hooked. And after that, I, I bought a Fitbit because I'd been walking with a cane. I couldn't walk more than a couple hundred yards when I was at my limiest. And with the Fitbit, I discovered that when I really got into the zone and walking, also I was doing five, eight kilometers a day. Sorry there, I'm Canadian. Five <laughs> miles a day. Uh, um, <laughs> I have to remember to translate for you. I, I could walk five, six miles a day at my own pace, and I was in the zone. And and so then it began. And, and then, it, interesting, what happened after that was um, where I live in this townhouse complex, some woodpeckers started to um, attack the walls and there was holes. And I heard a few comments about, well, you know, we didn't have this problem before Bell moved in and, and his bird feeders. So the implication was I was causing all this. And so I ended up giving a, a very impassioned plea at the annual general meeting of, of, of the condo. And I, I thought as a former CEO, I was done with presentations at AGMs and worried about cranky shareholders, you know, and I, I did my homework and I said, you know, the woodpeckers, they're not beating their head against the stucco for nothing. And it turns out there were a few places where there's some insects in the walls and, mm -hmm. the, and the woodpeckers could, could smell them. 
So not only did I win the day, I was asked to put on a presentation. Um, so, you know, at that point, I'd only been birding for, you know, six months or a year. But I managed to show them pictures just from my backyard of, you know, indigo bunting and, and you know, cardinals and Baltimore Orioles and all these beautiful birds. And sort of the consensus was we had no idea that we had so many beautiful birds because most people just aren't paying attention. Um, we had no idea we had so many beautiful birds around. So, so everybody was swayed. And then that was done through the local library. And then the library system started asking me to give talks at other branches. And then all of a sudden I became this public speaker giving all these talks. And then my niece said, uncle Bob, you should write a book. And then the whole thing, here we are. But I am an accidental author because I wrote it for myself. It was cathartic to get this story out of my system, especially, you know, I haven't talked about it yet, but the real frustration with the, you know, I haven't gone into the gory details of the frustration of dealing with the conventional medical system. And so it was good to write it down. And just on a whim, I, I, I did a bit of homework and found, you know, submitted it to a few publishers. And, and here I am. And, and, and the book, uh, the book is out. And I'm very pleased with the response, you know, people like yourself uh, reading it. Who would have thought it was in California? <laughs> It was such a fun read, and it, it really did surprise me that it was your first book because it's beautifully written. It does not it does not read like someone's first book. You're you're a wonderful storyteller, and I was just so so grateful to be able to learn from you and to learn from your story and and resonate with parts of it. I don't have Lyme disease, but I I have found some of the similar threads of hope and and life giving the life-giving nature of birding, of, of going out and of going for a walk. And of the time, like you said, the time and the miles just kind of pass you by because you're in the zone. And and it's such a joy that you don't feel those miles ticking by. You know, and speaking of ticking by, that's a great segue that the other thing I really like about birds is the cyclicity. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what it's going on in the world and, and evil stuff and bad stuff and, and people's worries and anxieties the birds have a cyclical routine and you can count on it. And it really demarks the passage of time. Mm. The big one, of course, is spring migration, waiting for, you know, all our beautiful warblers and vireos and birds that have escaped our winters, you know, especially the insect eaters obviously have to go south, but they come flooding back in late April, early May. And for a week or, or two weeks, every morning, you're like a kid waiting for Santa Claus the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny all rolled into one because the most birds migrate at night. And so you, every morning there's a, often, a, especially if there's southerly winds, you never know what you're going to see. Every day is a new adventure. So that's fantastic. And then in the summer, it actually goes quiet, but the birds aren't quiet. That's when they're nesting. And, and, and they, I find they stop coming to the feeders because they, they're smart enough. They'd rather, not feed their kids junk food. They go out and, and give them natural food. But then once the babies are fledged, all of a sudden they're coming back to my feeders. And then shorebird migration of all the waders coming down from uh, the Arctic and James Bay, they actually, that actually starts in late July hmm. and, and right through August. And then you know mid-August, migration's in full swing to the south again. And that goes into September, even into October. And then it's duck season and then it's owl season through the winter. And then you're back to, so I really like that cyclicity that you can count on. And, and um, it's just something you can, you can mark your passage of time with. That's, that's really endearing. Yeah. There's always something to look forward to 
Although I think everyone should be exempt. Birders should be exempt from going to work during the couple weeks of spring migration. <laughs> so many of my birding friends are so jealous that I'm retired. <laughs> you know, especially if there's something rare that's like a one-day wonder and they just can't drop everything and go and see it, but but I can. So <laughs> Yeah, there is my my husband is always like, Oh, you know, tell me about the XYZ bird that you missed that you won't get to see for another 12 months. And I'm like, no, that like this is a real tragedy. Like you need to appreciate what a what a what a loss this is. I'll see the pictures online, but it's spring migration. It's hard to go into the office, man. Yeah. Being retired, the uh, the pay sucks, but the hour's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it was a retirement you didn't choose. It was a retirement that was thrust upon you. And that's part of the story yeah. as well. Well, you know, you know the old expression, when you're given lemons, make lemonade. And, you know, why sit around and feel sorry for yourself? It is what it is. And, and you know, it's it's been really wonderful to discover this world and and, and find there's such a huge community of like-minded people. And, you know, during the, the pandemic, the fastest growing hobby in the world was birding. And again, you know, my comment about how the birds don't care what angst we're going through, they live their lives. So during the pandemic, it didn't matter what your favorite passion was or hobby, it wasn't happening. You, you know, you couldn't watch football on TV or you couldn't go play tennis or whatever. And so but the birds were singing and they were probably more audible because the world was quieter. There wasn't a the traffic. So people started paying attention to birds. And there was articles in the New York Times and you know, all over the world that there's all this press about, about birds. And it really did catch on. And, you know, I have an ulterior motive in pushing my passion for birding is that, you know, the more people that you have that are excited and interested in birds, obviously they're going to be more aware of and pushing for conservation of birds and habitat and climate change. And, you know, climate change is, is obviously probably a huge driver in the expansion of line and, and the ticks further north and the ticks, you know, unfortunately they piggyback rides on birds, but then the climate's more amenable to them because it's not so cold anymore and they can survive down to like one degree. They can still give you lime at like one degree or zero, one degree, sorry, here we go again, Celsius, 32 Fahrenheit, they're, they're still infectious. So, so, you know, the more people that get um, addicted to birds, the more people are going to try to save this planet. I, I absolutely agree. I think it it doesn't just help you tune into birds. By tuning into birds, you, t you tune into seasons and you tune into changes in the climate and you tune into, oh my goodness, there's trash at this park and there shouldn't be. You know, like you really do. It really does open your eyes to many, many layers of things and also just how interconnected we are, how... Yeah, I was I was talking to a birder a few weeks ago about birds and vultures in India were dying because of the treatment they were giving to livestock. You know, something they never thought about. They're giving these antibiotics yeah. to livestock, but then the vultures are dying. And and you cannot pull one Jenga block out of the system without it affecting the rest of the tower. You know, I've only been birding for seven years, and yet as a full time hobby, and yet you know I can see the decline in in some of the birds just in seven years it's it's scary so yeah, uh, yeah we we need more people caring about the environment and and the climate and you know that's coming from a geologist that you know most geologists never believed that that climate change was man driven only because we think in geological terms, and we know that I mean you know ten thousand years ago we were buried under a mile of ice and and, you know, there's 
petrified forests in the Canadian Arctic that are 30, 40 million years old. So the climate is changing on the earth constantly. So geologists were always skeptical, but not anymore. It's so obviously man-driven mm-hmm. that we need to, to put the brakes on and uh, do something about it before it's too late. I really was not prepared for how getting into birding would also mean being almost constantly acquainted with grief because it does put you in touch with the natural world and the things that we've done and continue to do to the natural world. And, you know, there, there are days that we, we have bird flu right now in Southern California. And so we'll go out and there's signage and don't touch the ducks if they're dead and report them to the ranger station. And, you know, just, just seeing the, it, it isn't all joy and hope and lifting of the spirits. It also does put you in touch with the state our, our earth is in and, and how we have contributed to that collectively Absolutely. and individually. You know, when I'm, when I'm too tired to walk out to the recycling bin, I'm like, think of the birds, Courtney, think of the birds. Um, so I want to just piggyback on that idea because it is so easy to get bogged down in the despair and the ways that we have cruelly treated our planet. Where do you find hope in the world of birding? Yeah, what I loved about your book was you you have a difficult personal story. You were this person who was on the go, who was traveling internationally, who was, you know, this mover and shaker in your industry. And then all of a sudden, Lyme brought you so low. But this book fundamentally is a story of hope. It's the way the birds saved you. And this book is this beautiful invitation to all of us, folks who are struggling with chronic illness or mental illness, to follow this trail of hope. So tell me the story of this trail of hope for you. How did the birds help to save you? I think the big thing is instead of sitting at home and feeling sorry for myself and feeling my aches and pains, they got me off my butt and out the door and into nature. And, you know, that is my, my healing. And they're so soothing and calming and beautiful. And, and they're just so wonderful to watch them. And now I, you know, so it, it, it's hope in terms of I've got a, a bright future, even though I, I'm in pain a lot and I, you know, I don't want to complain about it. But I know the future is bright because every day when I get up, it's not a matter of, of, of uh, if I go birding or not. It's where am I going to go birding? And, mm. you know, some days it's, it's just sitting and watching the feeders. But, but that's hope. And then now that I've been birding so many years now, you get more specific, like hoping to see a certain bird or a certain family of birds or hoping to get a better picture or a better look, you know, that sort of thing. And hoping to travel somewhere, you know, else that has birds that I don't have here, uh, that sort of thing. So yes, it's, it's, it's a various levels of hope, but, yeah. but the big hope is just that the hope for the, the hope for enjoying my life, you know, and mm. it's, it's, it's much more enjoyable with the birds in it than, uh, than before. It I'd really much rather be out doing that and watching Netflix, you know, and that's not a shot against Netflix, but but you know, I'd rather be doing something uh, that's calming. I think the the piece of birding always having something to help us look forward to has been a really big piece of it for me. I'm I'm the parent of yes. three small kids and you know, going through the pandemic and all of the things that they weren't able to do. And there's no there's no soccer and we can't do ballet right now. And you know, the the children's choir is off and and all these things that were stripped away. And to be able to realize, okay, tomorrow morning, there's still something to look forward to because 
it's spring migration. There's still something to look forward to because we're going to go to this new hiking trail. There's still something to look forward to. And I, I am not a morning person, but I wake up most mornings so excited to get my coffee and sit in my backyard for five minutes and see what's there. And sometimes it's just the crows and they are loud and they have opinions, but they're fascinating. There's, there's always something to look forward to. And, and often the brightest um, point of the day is a surprise, something that you weren't looking for, weren't expecting. And I actually, I allude to this in the book. It's like the old, at least here in Ontario, the uh, Lottery Commission used to have a, an ad that said, if you don't play, you can't win. You know, if you're not outbirding, you don't know what you might have missed. And, and it's often like, you know, when I was at university, a spontaneous party was often way more fun than one that had been planned for months. So you go birding and, and you're targeting, you know, I want to say, I really want to see a black and white uh, uh, warbler, but lo and behold, a, a peleated woodpecker comes and lands right in front of you and you sit and watch it for half an hour, almost chop a tree down. And it's just awesome, but it wasn't what you were anticipating. So it's that sense of, of uncertainty and the excitement. So you hope for that. That's a huge bit of the hope that, that something really cool is going to happen. And, it, you know, some days I go out, and it's not a bird at all. I see a coyote, you know, or or I get to see some, you know, a bunch of white-tailed deer that, that you know we have all around here. So you know, as long as you're out, you never know what you're going to see that's going to be heartwarming. Hmm. Birding is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> yes, forest. <laughs> exactly. I love it. It has taught me a lot about my own expectations and kind of holding those with open hands because I will, I will go out like, oh my goodness, there's a vermilion flycatcher at the local preserve. I have to see it. And then I'll go out hunting for it and I won't see it, but I'll see my first snow goose. And so to let go of the kind of waiting to receive whatever is given rather than trying to force something to happen has really been a lesson for me. Well, and you know what? If you got what you wanted every time you went out, it would get boring really quickly. You would you would get jaded. It'd be you like mean, going to the grocery keeps, store, right? I need milk and eggs. Got it. Going home. What, yeah, it's what keeps bringing us back because you never know what you're going to see. And, and uh, in, even if it's the same bird, it might be just a better look at it. Or you get to watch a different behavior. I love watching birds live their lives. You know, as as a guy that wasn't a photographer, but I think I'm getting reasonably good at it now, taking pictures. You know, there's one thing to get an Audubon-style National Geographic bird totally posed out in the open. Okay, that's great for a field guide. But I love seeing them living their life, doing something, feeding the, the youngster or, or probing a bark and pulling an insect out or, you know. Some a cameo of the bird enjoying its life. That's more important to me. And I don't care if there's a few branches in the way. I've so enjoyed your bird photography. We we found each other on Twitter and it was your photography that first drew me in before I even knew your story of, of Lyme. And I love you every once in a while have a photo where you've just captured a bird's expression where it just so fully captures that grumpy chickadee or the, you know, the the finch who's got an attitude or the cardinal who is just showing off. And and I love that, that there is there is, I mean, you're very skilled, but also you have a sense of whimsy about it. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, it, it's thank goodness for digital cameras, <laughs> you know, for you sure. Know, back, when, back when I was working, I was um, I was very lucky to uh, spend the summer um, exploring up in Greenland. 
And back in the day, you know, I took, I think, 10 rolls of 36 film for my camera. I shot them all like in the first five or six days. And I spent the rest of the summer with, without being able to take any pictures because you don't go to the corner store in Greenland to, to get more film. So the beauty of digital cameras is you can make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, people say, oh, Bob, you take such beautiful pictures. And they say, yeah, but you're not seeing the other 90% that I deleted all the quivering branches where he just was. Or, in fact, you know, I was going to say there's a fellow um, that tweets on it. Maybe you follow him called, uh, his handle is the inept birder. Love him. <laughs> Carl, Carl Medcham. And, and what a sense of humor. What a beautiful bird, probably. You know, everything's <laughs> out of focus. Or <laughs> It's either a warbler or a piece of trash. We're not sure. <laughs> exactly. So I, I love that side of it too. Like, you know, you don't want to get too full of yourself and, and, and you know, it bring it keeps you humble. And and you know, you never stop learning. You can always improve at bird identification. And you know, and speaking of that, it makes me think of if your listeners aren't aware of Cornell's uh, Merlin app, the addition of the sound recording has been a game changer for me because my hearing is very, very poor. Uh, partly because of my Lyme, I've got like really roaring tinnitus. So I have to hear over about 80 decibels. So you go out and it's like Shazam for birds. You know, I hit record and all of a sudden it's, you know, all the bird names are, are scrolling up. You know, I'm seeing all these names that are singing and I'm not hearing them, but mm -hmm. I know where they're going to be, whether they're low in the bushes or up high. So I can focus and concentrate more. And I end up spotting a lot more because I'm aware that the bird is there that I might have walked right past. I mean, it's, it's not 100% foolproof, but it's pretty darn good. It's a Very fabulous good. tool. And like you said, it tells you then what you're looking for. Like it's a warbler. I'm going to look up. It's a sparrow. I'm going to look down and, and what color you're yeah. looking for and where they might be. And, and it's, it's almost like the map to the treasure hunt. It's, exactly. it's wonderful and it's free. I link to every single podcast. I link to Merlin in the show notes because I tell people if you're starting out, that's where I would recommend starting. And, and if you don't want to be an on an app, which I understand some people think that takes them out of the mindfulness, then then grab a good field guide or even just grab one from the library. It's it's really fun to start learning how to identify birds. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, I, I use a, um, a digital bird guide called iBird Pro. Mm. And, you know, I bought it a few years ago, but it was only 20, 22 or $25 Canadian. So less probably less than 20 US. Um, and it's like having a full field guide on, on your phone. So you yeah. don't have to lug around a book and it, it's all right there at your fingertips. And, you know, you can look something up on the spot in real time and, and it's got this search function. So, it, you know, it's faster than leafing through a book. Technology, in my opinion, is one of the big reasons why birding is becoming more popular with younger people. Um, birding is no longer bird watching of stereotypical old men in tilly hats. You know, it, there's, you know, at least here, there's so many young people that are totally into it. And I think it's all got to do with, with eBird and being able to be competitive and posting on eBird and having the biggest lists, digital cameras, being able to take pictures and delete social media, being able to share. And it, uh, it's really heartwarming to see how many young people are getting hooked on birding, you know, and, and just birding is a more, aggressive term than the passive bird watching you know it's 
it, it just sounds cooler. <laughs> it does. And, and I see these young birders and that's one of the things that gives me hope is the generations that follow us are getting into this early and that is hopeful for ecology and conservation and just passion around the natural world. I, I, that generation gives me great hope. Don, I wish I'd thought of that when you asked me what gives me hope, because that, you know, <laughs> that is definitely another one, because it's it, it links right to my whole ulterior motive of wanting more people hooked. But to get younger people hooked means they've got a whole lifetime of advocacy, Yeah, you know, which is really good for the planet. I'm working on all three of my kids, and at various moments, they'll they'll connect with it or not connect with it. Our oldest son was not very interested. And then he was like, mom, I think if I was going to be interested in one bird, it would be the peregrine falcon. And I was like, let me show you a nest camera. And now he and I check in on the peregrine falcon and see how their nest is doing. And, and, you know, God bless the, the zoos and the organizations that, that post those cameras, because that is, that is one of the ways to connect with, with kids. It's really exciting to watch birds hatch and watch those mamas come in with their rats and their other birds that they're going to feed to their babies. It's, it's gruesome and it's delightful. Absolutely. Now, there's a great spark bird for a kid. I mean, the fastest animal on the planet, up to 390, oops, here we go again, about 240 <laughs> miles per hour. I have to do some mental math here. And kids are all about superlatives, um, right? They want the fastest and the best and the yeah, highest. Yeah, and the, yeah, so that, exactly. that was what grabbed him was it's the fastest bird. And he was like, okay, if I'm going to be interested in one, it's that one. I'm following that trail. I'm following that trail with him. Well, Bob, if someone is listening to this podcast and they are just in the depths of a chronic illness and everything aches and everything hurts and they don't even know where to start with birding, what advice would you give to them? You know, I would start on your computer online. And to me, my go-to spot is the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, their website, all about birds, one-stop shopping. I mean, and that's not to put down any others because there's tons of, of great places. You have to be careful with when I first started you know, on Facebook, for example, you'd, you'd go to these sites that rate this bird for cuteness. How cute is this bird from one to 10? And it's so obviously Photoshopped and it's not in the right colors. So you have to be careful. And that's why I took pains in my book to give a lot of resources and, mm -hmm. and name the really good Facebook groups. And But I would start online and then you know, again, it depends on your, your ability. If you can go for a walk into a park, cemeteries, are great places to go and look for birds because they're full of huge mature trees and then open spaces. So there's lots of squirrels and whatnot. And those big hole trees are great for owls and, and raptors. So the circle of life is <laughs> continues in the cemetery. It's a, and it's just a nice calming, soothing place to go for a walk. The flip side is, is, is this is a, getting away from your question, but sewage lagoons are very popular for birders you know, for, for sure birds. Well, I, I love your point that it's very funny where you will find birders because you'll walk up and be like, this smells terrible. Why would we go here? And then you turn the corner and it's 15 people with binoculars and silly hats, right? It's the, if you're going for the bird, you don't mind the smell. You're in the back of the Walmart parking lot because that's where the tree is, where the owl lives. It's, I, I love that piece of birding. There, there's one water treatment plant uh, fairly close to me that's famous for birding because it's got a little forest patch adjacent to it. And the warm water creates like a microclimate. And so there's midges and, and insects hatching off that water all winter, even here in our cold Canadian winter. 
And, and so there's some, some birds get lulled into staying there all winter. They don't migrate. So every winter there'll be like a Northern Perula or a hooded warbler or a Nashville warbler. It's, it's really cool. And like, we call it stinky forest because it doesn't smell the best, but, but, uh, but it really is beneficial to the birds. And when we look at your beautiful photography from those stinky areas, we can't smell it. It just looks great. <laughs> You've done exactly. us a service, Bob. <laughs> well, tell me about but your... Yeah, so, no, go ahead. Sorry? No, go ahead. No, Keep, I was go say, just getting back where you were saying about how to get into birding. So, I mean, if you, if you do have a house where you can put out bird feeders, that's a great way to start, especially with children, you know chickadees will come and eat out of, out of your hand and, and you know that's a great way of enticing kids but but watching nest cams and 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 read up a bit on the on the birds that are in your area and then just start going for walks and then eventually as you progress you, you know local nature clubs or lacking them uh, photography clubs because photography clubs often focus on, on birds and nature so so i would i would i would go that route and uh, <laughs> And, or email me and ask for, ask for uh, advice for Ontario at least. My uh, you can give my email address if you want. Uh, Perfect. At the end. I don't know if you have a you'll, you'll put a, some kind of sticker or something on the. You can show my Twitter handle and an email address if you want. Perfect. That's that's a very kind invitation. That if you're if you're just getting into birding or if you're struggling with chronic illness, Bob is a good. Friend of the journey, friend for the journey. He's he's in the midst of it himself, and I'll link to your Twitter handle in the show notes, and also um, places where people can find your lovely book, which I really, really have so enjoyed. So thank you for thank you for taking me on your on your birding journey. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, very kind of you to invite me. I've enjoyed. I love sharing my my uh, my passion for birds. So much appreciated. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Oh, you're so... You sit there.